It is a great privilege to be back here at Trail Branch Church. We had the uh, opportunity to be here with you recently, and we appreciate your kindness and the kindness of your pastor in giving me another chance. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. You're charitable folks. Um, I do want to say, as we went over a very long prayer list, here as it is at McClenny Church each Sunday, um, that we do in a very special way, every Sunday morning that we meet, we call your dear pastor's wife's name before the Lord publicly. And uh, I visited with uh, she and brother Stephen on the phone, I, I don't know, maybe about a week ago. And so I was asking, you know, Brother Stephen, how is Sister Angel doing? I didn't know she was in the car. And uh, he said, well, you know, we're a little concerned about this, a little maybe concerned about... She said, Brother David, I'm doing fine. <laughs> God's been good. <laughs> and I don't have anything to say except how great the Lord is. What a sweet, sweet testimony. And we're so thankful that the Lord continues to bless. I'm thankful for the wonderful hymn singing this morning. Very grateful for the Christ-centered hymns that were selected. Uh, they cheer our hearts, direct us to our reason for being, our purpose for being here. Uh, everything only to the glory of His great name. So, uh, finally, please pray for me as we attempt to try to share the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great privilege to speak His name before God's believing people. Now, I want to share with you from a passage of Scripture that will be ultra-familiar to everyone. And it's such a passage and contains such vital truth that I've asked the Lord until He calls me home to be with Him. If it could be His will, there are two passages of Scripture, two subjects that I've asked Him, if He could maybe before He calls me home, maybe once a year somewhere, let me speak on these two passages until He calls me home. I love them so much but the truths that they contain, both of them in separate areas of truth, they're so key, so vital. The other one, um, the other passage, the other subject, help us keep, it, it will help us keep a proper perspective uh, on this world, who we are and our place in this world. That's so important. If we ever lose perspective uh, about who we are, our place in this world, but especially where we're going, we'll get in trouble very quickly. But this one really helps us to this passage as much as any that I know in God's Word helps me to keep uh, in front of my face. It helps me to constantly define who God is, my relationship with Him, and what my response to Him ought to be. And that should be the sum total of what our life is all about. This passage really brings that home for me. But in doing that, um, and these, this is going to be a narrative that our Savior shares. Uh, it's one of three narratives that He shares here, and I'll tell you where it is in just a minute. Um, it, there are things that can be easily misunderstood, and that's one of the great difficulties in trying to share the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's easy not to communicate well. Um, there's one fellow that said uh, about organizations, 
in the world uh, that every organization problem is a communication problem. It's difficult to communicate effectively. So we need the Holy Spirit. And we need your charity where we don't do it well. Um, there's a little story I tell every once in a while about uh, not communicating effectively in the house of God and how it can lead to difficulty where I pastored uh, 45 years ago uh, or just a little more than that when I began to pastor McClenny Primitive Baptist Church. You got it right, Brother Dusty. McClenny Primitive Baptist Church, uh, they sang, you've probably never seen one, they sang out of a little black psalter. It had no notes in it. It was a little small black psalter, little hymn book that just had poetry and uh, the song leader would do what they called a pseudo tune to each, you know, uh, because it didn't have any notes. And so uh, the church used to actually line hymns. I don't know if you've ever heard about that. Hymn lining. And what that would mean is the brother that was leading, he would speak in kind of a sing-song cadence. He would speak the first couple of phrases to a line and then the church would sing that. You didn't even have to have a book. You could just listen to the song leader and sing what he said. And that was called lining the hymn. And so the church... Now my grandmother told me this story. I don't know how much truth there is. And we can't ask her. She's, she's going on to be with the Lord now. But she said one morning... I was a little boy when she told me this. She said one morning the church gathered. And uh, the song leader said to the church, My eyes are dim. I cannot see... I left my specs at home. And they sang that. And, and he said, I didn't mean it for a hymn. I only meant my eyes are dim. And they sang that. And he got upset and he said, The devil is among you all. I didn't mean to sing it all. And they sang that and he went out the side door. So, <laughs> communicating is hard. <laughs> and... Uh, you all have to be charitable with me if I don't communicate these truths as they should be. But they are glorious and they are vital truths. Um, Christ, in this passage, He, for His hearers, and there are two groups that are going to hear Him. There are two groups that have drew near to Him. One of them are the publicans and sinners. Not Republicans and sinners, but publicans and sinners, and the scribes and the Pharisees. And they represented two opposites of the continuum. The publicans and, consent, and sinners, they were, they were very earthbound. They were uh, focused on what they could enjoy in this world. You say, well, Brother David, we're sinners. No. This is a little. This is a group of folks that are bona fide, sure enough, uh, metal-wearing sinners. I mean, they are. They, they're not really concerned about uh, living after the precepts and the ordinances of God. The strength of the word there uh, is that they're they've been debauched at least at one point in their life, and uh, they're they're pretty well turned loose in their manner of living. The publicans and the they're the most unclean group that the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, that's a self righteous group. Uh, they're the most unclean group. Neither group would have anything to do with another. Here you've got these loose living kind of folks, and then you've got the self righteous bunch. And you've heard a lot about both of them, so I won't go into great, great detail. But they just kind of. 
they, their opposite camps on their worldview and what's important in the world. So the first bunch, it's uh, getting all you can, just living life to the gusto, whatever feels good, do it. Um, it doesn't get any better than this, having you know a big party, enjoying whatever this world has to offer and the pleasures of this world. Uh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. That's what life is all about for the first group. And uh, they, would view, they would have viewed the Father in, in a certain way. They would have seen Him as a sin-avenging, heavy-handed God, and they'd been very afraid of Him. And then the second group, the self-righteous group, that really felt that they were better than anybody else. Uh, and by the way, this is the group that Christ held His most scathing words for uh, in His public ministry of three and a half years. Scathing words. You ought to read Matthew 21 and 23 uh, at some point. He had no patience for the scribes and the Pharisees who felt like that they were better than anybody else. And just to come in contact with the ordinary or common Jew of their day would, rid, would, would cause them to be unclean and they'd have to wash and go through ceremonial cleansings. They just felt like they were cleaner, better, and getting it done. And uh, so they had a view of God that would support their self-righteous out, out view on life. So Jesus presents a narrative uh, a parable, if you will, to redefine the Father for both of those groups. He's going to redefine the Father. He's going to redefine sin for them because both of them have a warped view of sin. They have a twisted view of the Father. And then He's going to uh, define for us what our reason for being should be at the very end. Now this is, uh, some of you already have guessed, this is contained in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Um, and you're free to turn there now. I just needed your attention for about five minutes to share that much before you began reading. In Luke chapter 15, there are three narratives. And each one of these narratives are going to uh, check the <coughs> listeners of the Lord Jesus Christ and their attitude about restoration of things that have been lost. Each one of these narratives, there's going to be the narrative, there's going to be the parable of a single sheep that was lost, a single silver coin that was lost, and then a son that is lost. And the purpose of Christ in each one of these narratives is to address the proper attitude of what God's people ought to be about things that are restored. Matters that are restored. And let me say this, you should be interested in that because if you've been quickened and born again by the sovereign grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm telling you, you have been restored. You've experienced the restoration of sovereign grace. And there's an attitude that you should have of thankfulness about uh, the restoration power of the grace of God. But we're going to read to you. We're going to read the Word of God. And we're going to read several. I read more than I used to. Uh, I found out at least that portion of the sermon is inspired. <laughs> so we read more than we used to. And he said, verse 11. Go down to verse 11. This is the third narrative. It's about the rest of, It's really about two lost sons. We think of it when we think of the uh, parable of the prodigal son. 
Um, we, we think about one lost son, but there are really two lost sons in this parable. And that's important. That's going to become key, God willing. And He said, uh, Jesus said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger uh, of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. That would have been one-third of everything that the father owned. He's asking the father to liquidate your holdings, your assets, and give to me what would have belonged to me if you had died. What he's essentially telling his father right here, if you can believe it, Father, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me what would belong to me if you were dead. That would have shocked his hearers. And so he did. This would have been more shocking to his hearers the father did that very thing. He did. He sold off probably a third of his land, uh, which would have been, um, that would have represented wealth in an agrarian society. So it probably represents a third of his land as estate holdings. That would have represented the father's standing and statue uh, in the community. Uh, agrarian societies, societies that are based in agriculture. Uh, the standing of an individual, especially, especially in a patriarchal society, the standing of the head of a home would have been identified by how much, how much land do you have? The greater land, the greater your holding, the greater your stature. And here is a father that's going to sell off one-third of all the land that he has because his son has wished him dead and said, I want what's coming to me if you had died. That would have utterly shocked his hearers, the hearers of Christ. Not many days after that, you know the story, the younger son gathered all, took his journey a far country, and he wasted all in riotous living. And when he had spent all he had, a mighty famine comes in the land, and he begins to be in one. And he joined himself to a citizen of that country, and uh, he went where no Jewish boy should ever go. He went into the fields to feed swine. And he was so hungry, would have fame filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man would have mercy on him. No man would give unto him. And he came to himself. I want to say this. This is a large and beautiful congregation. And there are some of you that have issues in your life. You're dealing with brokenness in your families and homes. And there's somebody you're trying to help. I want you to know you can't help folks until they come to themselves. They just cannot. You can't until they bottom out. Until they get to the end of themselves... You just can't help them. It's sending good money after bad, as they say, in our part of the country. And God knows how to bring people to the end of Himself. And so here He does. And He thinks, how many hired servants of my fathers have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? And He said, I'll arise, go to my father. He has a plan. And He says unto him, Father, I've sinned against heaven before Thee. I'm no more worthy to be called Thy son. Make me as one of Thy hired servants. Now, I appreciate the boy's attitude here. Uh, those two words, hired servants, uh, it carries the idea of a skilled craftsman. You know, like somebody who's, a, um, who's been turned out in the trades. Uh, they're a skilled HVAC person or they're uh, a skilled pipe fitter. They can do very well for themselves once they attain that master craftsman status. That's what he's saying here. He's come up with a plan. I'll go back, I'll gather skills, um, I'll become a skilled craftsman, and all the money that I get, I'll give to my father so that he can buy back everything that I've taken from him. But 
he, uh, he says, I'll, I'll, go, I'll tell him this. I'll go back to my father and he's got the right attitude. He'll say, I've sinned against heaven and before thee. I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy servants. Listen, remorse is not saying, if I've offended you, I'm sorry. Or more especially, I've heard a lot of these. If, I'm, if, you're, if you've gotten upset, I'm sorry that you're upset. You know, <laughs> that's not. Remorse is, I have sinned. And first of all, I've sinned against heaven, all sins against God, and I've sinned against you, and I'm not worthy to be called thy son. I'll seek a servant's place. He's not trying to negotiate. He arises, he goes to his father, but when he's a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, ran, fell on his neck, kissed him, and the, and he, the son said to his father, again, I've sinned against heaven, against thee, in thy sight, I'm not worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, bring hither the fatted calf, kill it, let us be merry and eat. The son would... Uh, for this, my son was dead, and he's alive again. He's lost, he's found. They begin to be merry. And his elder son was in the field, and he came and drew nigh to the house. He heard the music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother has come, thy father has killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And the elder brother was angry. He was beside himself. It's a very intense form of the word anger here. He is beside himself. Can't see straight. He would not go in. So his father goes out and entreated him. That means kind of begged him. He entreated him. And answering his father, I want you to, I'm not going to press this again, but he says, lo. He begins with lo. He's speaking to his precious father. He says, lo. The word low there literally means that the son looked at his father and it's as if he pointed his finger and he said, look. Now let me say, while my father was alive on the face of the earth, Brother Ronnie, that never occurred to me to speak to my father that way. I was about, I was about a foot taller than my father, but I'm going to tell you, it never occurred to me to speak to Cromer Crawford that way. But that's, that's just the gall that this young man has. He tells his father, look. And listen what an exalted opinion he has of himself. These many years do I serve thee. Listen to what he says. Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. <laughs> I, my whole life, and I'm in adulthood now, I'm over all of the affairs of the farm, and the whole time I've been alive, Dad, I never ever transgressed your commandments. Anyone that never transgressed, any man here, any red-blooded man here that never transgressed their father's commandment, would you please remain after service? I would like to speak to you. I want to know how you got it done. I couldn't make it through the day hardly when I was going. Only the grace of God, my father let me live. I had to be a preacher to repent of all of that meanness when I was a little boy. And so, he, he has an exalted opinion of himself. And he said, yet, in, sp in spite of my great record, uh, at no time uh, did you even give me a kid, much less did you kill the fatted calf. And there's a great difference that I might make merry of my friends. But as soon as this thy son, not my brother, 
don't have anything to do with Him. But as soon as this thy son has come, which has devoured thy living with harlots, prostitutes, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And He saith unto him, Son, thou art ever with me. And it was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother is dead and is alive and was lost and is found. I want you to remember in verse 31, he said, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. That's the key. That's the key to what I think the lesson is here uh, in this narrative. All that I have is thine. That is a fact. That's a fact. So we'll, we'll start by remembering that. He says, all that I have is thine. Now let's go back to the beginning of the narrative. And so, um, the son, the youngest son has said, now I want what belongs to me when you die. I wish you were dead. Give me what belongs to me. And so the Word of God says that He divided unto them, He divided unto them His living. That is, the Father went ahead right then. I mean, it's clear from the language that the Father went ahead right then. And some of you have done that or, or your parents did that in advance. And, and what a great move of love that is whenever people do that. As the Apostle Paul said, uh, it's not for the children uh, to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. It's right that we help our young folks. Not that we make our, their living for them, but that we help them. And so this father, he does that. He divests himself in this story. This father, this noble man, he divests himself of all of his assets, all of his land. And because of the law of uh, primogeniture back then, the laws of inheritance that would have governed the Jews at that time, the way that things would have been divided is the oldest son receives a double portion in the inheritance uh, of a father. And so uh, there only being two children, if my math is right, there only being two children, the oldest son here would have gotten two-thirds of whatever the father had, and the youngest son would have gotten one-third. So the Father, it's clear, has divided. Literally, the Father says, all that I have is thine. That's a fact. It belongs to Him. Every robe, every ring, every fatted calf. That will come back to us. Now, um, whenever the Father does that, those that are listening, especially the Pharisees and scribes, the first thing that would have occurred to them is that... Um, is that the youngest son should have been driven out. The father should have never done that. When he asked that, and then he makes, Dad, I wish you were dead. In the minds of the scribes and Pharisees, he ought to be driven out or stoned or killed. You're going to be killed for being disrespectful to your parents. I wonder how many teenagers in America would make that today. <laughs> I would get hard to find. I know I wouldn't have made it. I would not. I'm not proud of that, but I'm just telling you the way it is. So they, that blew their minds. And then, on the other side... The uh, publicans and the sinners are thinking, wow, what a dad. What a big heart. What a father that would do that. That's incredible. That's amazing. So it's going to have uh, a different impact. This father. Now he's beginning to redefine the father. Jesus, as he shares this, he's beginning to redefine the heavenly father for them. He's beginning to redefine their father in heaven. And the Father in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, He needed some redefining. Because the Jews in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, whenever they thought about who the Father was, 
They never thought of God. Now, never. The Jews, when Jesus came into the world, they, they didn't think of the Father as my Father, the Father in heaven as my Father on a personal basis. You know, whenever we think of God the Father today, whenever we pray to the Father, we see Him as our Father, right? He's our, but that's not the way. See, in the Old Testament, the only time that God's ever mentioned as Father in the Old Testament is in relation to the nation of Israel in total. God in the Old Testament is not talked about as the Father of individuals, just the Father of the nation of Israel. So whenever Jews think about God, they don't think about Him as their personal Father. They think about Him as, as our King, as our Shepherd, as our Lord, as the majesty of the entire cosmos. But they're not thinking about our Father, my Father, uh, Abba Father. Not, they're not thinking about that. So it was mind-boggling in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus keeps saying, Your Father, Your Father, Your Father, Your Father. The Pharisees and the scribes. It was blowing their mind to think that the, the great God of heaven and of earth could be my Dad. Now I don't say that irreverently. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Because you are sons, He sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your heart, whereby you cry, Abba, Father, which means Daddy. God wants us to know that He loves us and that He cares for us and that He is our Father. Now, he, now listen to me. He is, he is the final arbiter of this universe. He rules and super rules and the seraphim hide their blushing faces before Him. They cover their faces in front of His throne with their great wings. But I'm telling you, that great God is our Father. He's our Father. On Friday afternoons, I was principal of the Baker County High School for nine years. We used to have Friday afternoon meetings there. And people, if you heard, if you're one of the staff... Now, I was not a mean guy. I'm t I think I was pretty nice to work for. But if it got out, you had a Friday afternoon meeting with Mr. Crawford, those were never good meetings. I always met with folks on bad things on Friday afternoon, so they had two days to get the grit out of the crawl before they come back on Monday. So if you had a Friday afternoon meeting, Mr. Crawford, you know. So you had to have them. Human beings, being what they are, you have to meet with folks and provide a little counseling. And so um, they'd come in and they'd be a little, I'd try to make it as comfortable as possible, but still it is what it is. And uh, next door to Baker County High School, there was a school, Westside Elementary School. And when I was involved in those meetings on Friday afternoon, uh, one of our assistant principals get the golf cart and about 2.30 they'd go next door and they'd pick up a little blonde-headed, blue-eyed boy in that golf cart from the elementary school when it got out. And his name was Boo Crawford. <laughs> and they'd bring him over to the front office at Baker County High School and uh, uh, sometimes, there were a few times on Friday afternoons whenever I'm meeting in a very serious meeting, personnel meeting, he'd slip by my secretary. Now, people would not come through that door because Mr. Crawford's back there and he's having a Friday afternoon meeting. But John Anthony Boo Crawford didn't mind. He didn't know that's Mr. Crawford back there. That's my dad. <laughs> and he'd bust through those doors, little fella, and he'd open the door, Daddy! And he'd run around the desk and jump in my arms. And whoever's sitting across my desk would look up and say, Thank God. <laughs> God. Maybe that boy will mellow him out a little bit. 
See, there's a whole difference in perspective between Mr. Crawford and Daddy. And Jesus came into the world. One of the great messages He brought and that He brings home here is God is the thrice holy God of heaven and of earth, but that holy God is also Dad. He's our Father. Who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. But He's still Father. And He loves me and He cares for me. Now let me tell you for a father, and I have met with him. Thank God I've never experienced this as a father. I just spent a week with my precious son in Clinton, Mississippi, and we enjoyed great unbroken communion. But let me tell you, there's nothing that breaks the heart of a father. And I've dealt with them. I've counseled with them. I've tried to help them. There is nothing that breaks the heart of a father like the rejected love of a child. Nothing can break the heart of a father than when a child looks at them. I've seen them. I've seen the effect of it. I've been in their homes when a, when a child has told a parent, I wish you were dead and I wish I never saw your face again and if I ever see you again in this world, it'll be too soon. I'm gone. And I hope I never see you again. Nothing hurts the heart like rejected love. Amen? You ever experienced rejected love? There's nothing in this world that hurts like love that has been rejected. And it's bad enough when a boyfriend hurts a girlfriend or a girlfriend hurts a boyfriend, but the level of love that a parent has for their child and to have that child. Jesus redefines the Father whenever He shows us here's a Father that experienced rejected love. And let me tell you, friends, even though He is our Father from all eternity, the unfortunate and heartbreaking truth of our experience and our condition in this world is sinners, is that we are born into this world sinners. And by nature, we are the, until God comes into our life, by nature we're the children of wrath, even as others, and we would break the heart of our Father without giving any thought to it. Right? Isn't that sad? Isn't that sad? Even though we were given a Christ and the covenant of grace before the world began, until the Holy Spirit comes to us, until God dips His pen of love in our heart, we are by nature the children of wrath. And we do not love God. We do not care for God until God finds us and comes to us. And the Father in heaven bore the pain of rejected love for us. That's amazing, isn't it? You can grieve the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you, God has feelings. And so here we see that. We see a Father that bears the pain of rejected love. I'm telling you, whenever I think about how God's people, and I'm one of them, how we have done Him before we're born again and even after we're born again, God would have been righteous in just leaving us as we were. Just leaving us to our own ends. But He did not. He bears the pain of rejected love and He sends His Son into the world. And I'm telling you, that redefines... You know, most people, the way that they protect themselves, the way that people protect themselves after rejected... You think about the way you've protected yourself after somebody's rejected you. What do you do? You get angry, right? You get angry and it makes the heart callous and you don't, you don't feel the rejection as much once you get angry. That's not what 
our Father does. He's willing to receive the agony. The agony. That's a better word than pain. The agony of rejected love. And He, and he moves in reconciliation on behalf of His people. What forgiveness. I want to share this with you real quick um, about a father enduring the agony of rejected love. And it's a great picture of, of the Spirit that the Son of God wants us to uh, put forward in our life. See, everything that we're talking about right now, Christ expects us, once we're born again, to replicate that in our lives. If we appreciate what the Father's done, how He's bore our rejected love and brought us to Him, then we ought to replicate that back to those that we love, right? I mean, by this shall all men know you're My disciples, that you have love one for the other. So, uh, this is what... It, well, I just... You know, Brother David, I, I just can't do that. I, I can't. My father, he was... Uh, he had just graduated from high school. He was 17 years old, graduated young, graduated early, and he was beginning to exercise in the ministry in the church. And uh, uh, by all accounts and by his own testimony, he was, a, he was as afraid of the ministry as anybody I guess I've ever visited with, known or been exposed to. It paralyzed him as a young man. And he ran from it. He ran as hard as he possibly could from it. And uh, after he had, he, had spoke, he had tried to submit, tried to submit, um, and God would have given him grace if he would have, but he was, it's a frightening business. Let me tell you, I've been almost 50 years now and it's still frightening. <laughs> it's still a frightening business. Uh, it's, a, it's a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of a living God. And so after uh, several months, he told his father, he said, don't call on me anymore. I can't take this. I just can't take it. He said, well, son, God's blessing you and, and the church is being blessed and they're rejoicing and they want to hear you and, and, and the Lord's in it. And he said, I need to do God's will. And he told his father, he said, if you call on me again, I'm leaving. I'm telling you, I'll run away from home. He just graduated from high school, 17 years old. And the next Sunday, my grandfather called on him to preach and he left. He ran away. He went from Orlando, Florida. He went to Tampa, Florida. And he went to work on a road crew. Got a little, apart, got a little apartment and he began to work there. And, and it was tough. It was rough. Uh, just a teenage boy trying to make it on his own. Wouldn't have anything to do with his parents. Wouldn't call them. Wouldn't, uh, wouldn't go to see them. Uh, no notice he'd speak to some of his brothers and sisters. And they'd get word to his parents. That's the only reason they knew that he was alive. He meant he wasn't going back. After about six months, he began to get very hungry for the gospel. And he got in a work pickup truck that he borrowed for that weekend. And he drove to a, an old country church out from Lakeland, Florida. And Elder K.W. Johnson, he got there just as Brother Johnson was going in the pulpit. And my father walked in the back door and sat down in the back bench. And Brother Johnson said the arrangements this morning are for Brother Cromer Crawford to speak first in the service. And Dad got up and walked out the back door, got in the truck, gave it up as a bad idea. But after about another six months, uh, he thought that if he didn't see his mother, he just wasn't going to make it. He felt like I just, I've got it and she was precious. I've got to see my mother. And so he, uh, he got a train in the middle of the night from Tampa to Orlando, Florida. This is back in the early 50s. He got a train, and it wasn't far. They lived in downtown Orlando, a beautiful part of old downtown Orlando. And uh, he walked from the train station 
uh, early that morning. And he walked down Bradshaw Terrace to his mother and father's lovely home. And uh, it was about 4 o'clock in the morning. And uh, he walked up the steps to the door of his father's house. And he reached out. I can see the old doorknob right now in my mind. He reached out to turn the doorknob to go in their house. Nobody locked their doors back then. And as he started to turn the doorknob, the doorknob turned. He saw it turning and he took a step back. And on the other side was his father. And whenever he saw his father, he said, Dad, what are you doing up? He said, Son, I was waiting on you. I was up waiting on you. I've been waiting on you for the past year. I've been getting up every morning waiting to hear your steps coming down that sidewalk. Friends, that is a picture of the Father in Luke chapter 15. That's a picture of our Heavenly Father. He endures the agony of rejected love. And we can do the same. It's healing. It will make a difference in lives like nothing else possibly can. Our Father loves us in spite of what we have been toward Him. He loves us. And if He can love us like that, we can love others like that. There's no qualifying. We can. So these two groups now, uh, they're they're both in bad shape. One of them, these two sons represent those two groups that I talked about. Remember at the beginning I said you got the... uh, You've got the um, publicans and you've got the sinners. They're the young son that left home. And then you've got the Pharisees and you've got the scribes. They're the elder self-righteous son who stayed at home. And so they have, as I told you at the beginning, they have different worldviews. The young son believes that what this world is all about is self-discovery. If it feels good, do it. That just pleasure, that's what life is all about. Just one pleasure experience after the other. And then the other group is all about, you know, um, being right, being correct. And listen, we need to follow Jesus and we need to do what He says do. But our relationship with the Lord, the difference between them and grace-based folks is the Pharisees and the scribes felt like they could keep it right enough to merit their standing before God. We don't try to do right. And we don't try to keep the ordinances of God in order to merit our standing with God. But we try to follow the Lord and do what's right because Jesus has given us a standing with God. We don't behave in order for God to love us. We behave because God does love us. The Pharisee behaves in order to get God's love. Grace people behave because they feel like they have God's love. And God's been good to them. And that's what Jesus tells them. Uh, Jesus tells them that you're both wrong. Both of you are wrong. The uh, younger brother group and the elder son group, you're both wrong. The self-discovery group, if it feels good, do it. And the legalist, they are wrong. Uh, Jesus lets them know um, that the proud are out. The humble are in. You know, the Spirit of God speaking through the mouth of the psalmist David in Psalm 51, he says that the sacrifice, this is, what, this is what God is interested in from His people. He says the sacrifices of God, you want to know what God's pleased with? What kind of sacrifice God's But The sacrifices of God, they are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, Thou wilt not despise. So what's a broken spirit? 
What's a broken and contrite heart? How do you get one of those? You see what you have been, how you've broken the Father's heart, how you've been a sinner, how you had not done what you ought to do, and then you see what the Father's done for you, and that makes you want to offer up appropriate sacrifices of service to Him. If you're serving Him because of what He's done for you, God's well pleased with that. If you're serving Him for what you can get out of Him, God has no interest in that. And that's what the Pharisees and the, um, the Pharisees and the scribes were all about. So, then what is it? What is it? We get to our last point. He's redefined who the Father is, that He's not a gray-haired, long, white-bearded old man in heaven that's waiting to drop the piano on our heads whenever we do wrong. That's not Him. Um, that the Father is someone who endured the agony of rejected love, provides the Son. Um, he's redefined uh, really sin, what sin is. Um, so then, then what is the proper motive? What is it that should move us uh, to serve the Lord? What is, then what is life all about? If it's not about just keeping rules for the sake of keeping rules and it's not just one pleasure after the other, what is life all about? The true, di the true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ has seen something and it's in this narrative. It's contained in this narrative. I think it's really what the narrative is all about. And I want you to follow me now for just a few minutes. It'll take about five minutes. That's preacher code for an hour and a half, right? <laughs> Just kidding. Just a few minutes. So then, what is life all about? If it's not the young son's way, you know, just all about what's in this world. And let me stop and say this. There is great joy to be had in this world. Anybody that knows me back home, they know that I have great... I don't know anybody that's had a better life than me. We celebrate, we have a blast, we have good things, we do good things, have a great time. Um, we get together and have, have a wonderful time, a big time. God hasn't called us to be spiritual hermits and monks and live on the top of Mount Sinai and St. Catherine's isolated from the world. That's not it. So what is it? What is the truth that changes and gives us the proper perspective on life and living? Here it is. You have to really understand what it cost God to bring you home. That's the key. What did it cost to bring this young son home? What was it? You say, well, it didn't cost anything. It cost nothing to bring this young son home. He just showed up and he said, Father, I've sinned against heaven against thee, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I'll take a servant's place. And the Father said, oh, no, you don't. You're my son. Put a robe on his back. Put a ring on his finger. And kill the fatted calf. And that's it. Listen. It, it didn't cost that boy anything to come home, but it cost somebody else a lot for him to come home. Now, the robe is not just this jacket that I'm wearing. I got, I've got a bunch of these at home. Um, but the robe is it's very, very special. In a Jewish family, the patriarch would have had one. There would have been in a family, there would have been in the patriarchal model, there would have been one robe 
that belonged to the patriarch. And it would have been a robe unlike any other robes. And only the patriarch would wear it. It's very expensive. It's an heirloom. It would be passed down generation after generation. A very costly item. The fine robe. And then the ring on the finger. Very costly. Precious. And let me say, the fatted calf. The fatted calf. Let me say, in this day and age... Families did not eat meat often. They did not. It was a, a, a grain-based diet. Lentils, grains, uh, legumes. Folks just didn't eat meat on a regular basis. It wasn't there to eat. Every once in a while, you may kill a kid. That's what the elder son said. And you never even killed a kid for me. But you've killed a fatted calf for him. Every family didn't have a fatted calf. You only kept a fatted calf if there was some significant special event that was about to happen. Some big celebration is going to take place, like a wedding. Every once in a while, a family who could afford it, and every family couldn't afford to set aside a fatted calf for a big party. So this fatted calf that's killed automatically, spontaneously, for this returning son that was lost but now found that was dead and now alive... This fatted calf had been set aside for a very specific purpose. It's very costly to house this fatted calf. There would only be one ring in the family. There would only be one fine robe. And do you remember what I, you remember what I asked you to remember? I asked you to remember that the father told the son uh, from the beginning. We, we read it in the narrative. And at the end, the father tells the son, Son! Everything that I have is yours. Do you remember that? So, do you know whose fine robe is being given away? Do you know whose golden ring is being given away? Do you know who the fatted calf belongs to? I don't know if you've ever thought about it. They all belong to the elder brother. The father said, everything that I have is yours. You think about it. I've already, he's divested everything that he had. He's given it to the son. He's just living with the elder son now. So, in actuality, you think of, here's the key to this passage the father has given the son, the father has given the eldest son everything that it belongs. And then the three most valued things that belong to the elder son, this father has spontaneously taken them and given them. To the younger, no good ne'er-do-well, according to the elder son. Now you see why the elder son is so upset. You've taken what belongs to me. And you never gave me anything like that, except he really had. But you never celebrated what he's after. You never celebrated for me like you're celebrating for him. Let me tell you. Um, you know what a... And here's the message of the Gospel. Here's what it costs to bring you home. You know why the father gave the fine robe to the young son? Can you imagine the shape the young son came home in? I'm sure he was dirty. He was filthy. He hadn't eaten, right? He was emaciated. He looked hollow and empty. And he was gaunt. And so the Father is going to cover him and make him immediately look better with a fine robe. He's going to look a lot better once that fine robe's on him than he did when he came in. And he has nothing. He has no value. He has no assets. So the Father takes the golden ring and immediately He gives him assets. He's got some value. And He wears it on His hand. 
And He's going to be celebrated. He's been despised. He's been the Oscar. And we're going to celebrate you with this fatted calf. Immediately, the young man is transformed by the love of this father. And you know what a good, you know what a good elder brother would have done? You know what a good elder brother would have done? A really caring elder brother would have done? This is the way it, this is the way it should have went in the narrative, but it didn't. This is what a good elder brother would have done. If this elder brother really loved... Listen, the problem with both of these boys in the beginning of the story is they didn't love their father, they loved this stuff. The younger son didn't love his father in the beginning, he loved his stuff. But the elder son was no better. He didn't love the father as we see at the end. He loved his stuff. Listen, I don't love the Father in heaven. I don't love His stuff. I love Him. If He never does anything else for me, I love Him. I want you all to know that. A good elder brother would have done this. He would have went to his father and he would have said when the younger brother left, he would have seen the state that his father was in, the brokenheartedness of his father. A good elder brother would have went to him and said, Father, I know that you're broken, and I know that, that you can't stand the grief that you're going through, so listen, I'm going to leave here, and I'm going to go from city to city. This is what a good elder brother would have done. I'm going to go from city to city, and I'm going to search until I find my younger brother. And it doesn't matter what shape he's in, it doesn't matter where he's going, I'm going to go and I'm going to fetch him home. I'm going to bring him back. I'm going to restore him to you. That's what a good elder brother. It's sad that he didn't have one like that, isn't it? But praise God, the message Jesus wanted us to see that while He didn't have a good elder brother, you and I did have a good elder brother. And when we were lost and we were broken and we were penniless and we were hollow and gaunt because of the effects of sin in our life, Jesus didn't just leave His home and go to the next neighborhood. Jesus left heaven and came down into this world and was despised and rejected of men and suffered the, the shameful, uh, cruel entreatings of men against Himself. He didn't just go from Cochrane to Eastman, friends. He went from glory down to a sin-cursed earth for you and I. That's how far, that's what a good elder brother does. And that's what he did. You say, well, that was nice of him to make that trip. I don't know that we understand exactly what Christ did in coming down. Back about 20 years ago in Indonesia, there was a tidal wave that went through, and I'll never forget the scenes. As long as I live, a tidal went through and it killed about a quarter of a million people. And what's burned into my mind are the interviews of the uh, aid people who went to Indonesia. And as they were being interviewed, they were asked, what memories will you carry away from this place? A quarter of a million people lay dead. They couldn't bury them all. Their corpses were rotting. I apologize. But to get the scene. And they said, the thing that we'll remember above everything else is the horrible smell of death that stenches in our nose for the rest of our lives. We'll never forget it. Paul said when Christ came from heaven down here, that He endured the contradiction of sinners against Himself. Can you imagine what it was like for Christ who lived in the purity, the excellence of heaven, to come to this foul, sin-cursed earth and smell the stench of sin in His holy nostrils. Every day of His life, He endured it. He didn't just go from Cochranesma. He went from heaven to this sin-cursed earth for people who had rejected the love of the Father. 
And he didn't, he didn't save us like the elder brother of this could have delivered his brother uh, by writing a check. Jesus did not save us at the expense of his checkbook. But I'm telling you, he went to the cross. Jesus went to the cross. And so that you and I could be covered with his fine, royal, regal robe of righteousness, Jesus went to the cross and he was stripped naked before men in shame. You think about that. The crown prince of glory is naked before men. And God clothes it with darkness to hide the shame and the humiliation of the Son of God so that you can wear His royal robe. And He that was rich is made poor for you so that you can have substance and assets. That is, the love and grace of God in your life. And He's killed the fatted calf for you. That is, He celebrates you. Have you ever sat underneath the sound of the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and you felt freedom and liberty and the power of the Holy Spirit and you've rejoiced and you feasted on the finished work of the Son of God? You have fed on the fatted calf of the Gospel. Amen. What a glorious God. Thank God we've got a great elder brother. And that's the truth that should melt your heart and cause you to serve Him the longest day that you live. It's not about the pleasures of this world. And there's joy to be found. I love, I love fishing as good as the next fella. But I'm telling you, there is no high like the most high. Amen? Amen. Nothing like the joy of the communion and fellowship with my Savior. Because what He's done for me, going and getting me from the far re where I care myself to a far country in sin, and bringing me home to the Father's house, I want to serve Him the longest day that I live. There's nothing He can ask me that's too great. The hour will not get too late. The miles will not get too long because they didn't for Jesus. May God bless you to honor and love and thank God for your Father and for our elder brother as long as you live.